This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 40 years now. They're an activist, solutions-oriented publisher focused on bringing you tools for a world of change. They've now published over 600 books available both in print and ebooks, as well as an increasing library of audiobook selection as well. They care deeply about both what they publish and how they do business, and so the same thinker and doer approach permeates their in-house work and the books themselves. A certified B Corporation, they print on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, and they are carbon neutral, and they print only in North America, never offshore. And that's just the company themselves. Most importantly, they've got the best selection of books that you need to build your own regenerative ecological or community-based projects. You can check out their full list of titles now at newsociety.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. So, though we've covered many aspects of soil health on this show in previous episodes, this is an area of scientific and agronomic study which is constantly growing and evolving. It seems to me that there's a growing number of specialists who are pioneering research in very specific and detailed aspects of soil health, which helps to expand our overall picture of the ecosystem under our feet. But at the same time, it's essential to be able to translate all of this advanced biology, chemistry, and even physics into information that someone from outside of academia can translate into action on the land and a soil care and fertility strategy. So thanks to another great recommendation and connection from my friend Anya at Soilify, I was put in contact with Matt Slaughter to explore this kind of practical information. Now for 20 years, Matt has been helping farmers around the world understand their soil microbiology and finding ways to help them bring soil back to life. He is the founder, president, and laboratory director of Earthfort, where he's primarily focused on customer support through consultation and education, but is also responsible for product research and development. As the creator of Earthfort's products, he is constantly striving to help customers understand and use the products to the greatest advantage of the end user. As a scientist, philosopher, and a poet, Matthew is always learning and attempting to integrate natural, holistic processes into agriculture. Matt was also an early student of Elaine Ingham and worked with her for years going out onto consultations in remote places around the world. And in this interview, Matt starts by sharing some incredible stories from those early days in the field and the key learnings that have stayed with him until today. We talk about how he's developed the soil amendments and products that his company is well known for and what he's learned about how they work over years of study. We also get into broader understanding of soil health and function, as well as how it can differ across context and use cases. Matt gives his thoughts on many other soil amendment strategies like bioinoculants, different types of compost, biochar, and the like, as well as what all of this research and working with farmers all around the world has taught him about the commonalities and patterns of productive soil and land. Now, I've often been careful not to go too deep and academic into the topic of soil health Because, well, there's other shows that do that or are dedicated to that kind of information, and because of how technical and unapproachable it can be. But Matt does a great job of making all of the immense knowledge and experience that he has simple and approachable, so I know that you'll find valuable insights that you can use to develop your own soil care strategy. And with all of that said, let's hear now from Matt Slaughter. 
Matthew, thank you so much for taking time today. It's great to connect with you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. And I really Look, appreciate you doing this. So Fantastic. I'm really glad to hear that. And we have a lot that I would love to cover today. I mean, the topic of soil health, the transition to regenerative agriculture, and all of the subtopics that we can explore into that are vast. But let's start with the beginning. Can you give me a bit of an insight into your journey into studying soil and working with farmers? Yeah. So it's it's actually a long story as I was uh, unwrapping it for the for my project in Kenya because it's working with a lot of high level people. They were very interested in the in that journey as well. So my wife and I have been married for almost 30 years now. We'll be married in 30 years in March. And when we first got married, we signed up for the Peace Corps through the United States Peace Corps program, specifically to go to Africa or some other wonderful place in the world to, to work on agriculture. And she had an ag degree and I was a computer science guy. So we signed up for that. Gosh, it's been almost 30 years ago. And it turned, it didn't work out. So, you know, life happens, things move along. And, you know, that dream kind of got waylaid by, you know, advanced degrees and other types of things. So in 2003, I was looking for work and as, and I was a computer guy and I signed up, um, I got hired to work at a laboratory here in Corvallis. And that was 2003. It was the Soil Food Web Laboratory, um, the original laboratory of Dr. Elaine Ingham. And I know people in the regenerative world will know that name and, certainly. you know, certainly, uh, certainly not a not a bad credential to have an association with she um i was hired to work on their lab management system so and it <laughs> it turns out that the uh, computer side of things was easy to fix once somebody got in there knowing what was going on and in less than 6 months we created a system that was highly functional and there she was very pleased so she offered me the opportunity to learn and I decided at that time that the soil and agriculture working with farmers and things like that was much more interesting than computer science so and that's you know I hear this story a lot from a lot of the farmers that I work with is they were in tech and they made some money and they went into farming you know it's like uh so it's not a not an uncommon story for some of us to want to get away. So, and and the way uh, it worked out, I don't have a degree in soil science. I don't have a degree in microbiology. I don't have a degree in agronomy. Um, I learned by doing. So, the way she taught me <laughs> is great. First, she gave me a, a pile of books to to read. And of course, she had her own teachings and she taught me what she, what she does and what she knows. And I learned all about the lab and all of the testing methodology and everything that goes with that. But then basically, she just started sending me out into the field. So the way she put it is like, well, you know, I'm getting I'm getting old. She wasn't that old, but she was she was uh, she's like, ah, you know, I don't really feel like going to rural Nicaragua. 
to work with sugarcane. I'm like, okay, I'll go. It's like, oh, there's this coffee plantation in Guatemala. It's, you know, it's like, it's way up in the mountains. And I just, I don't want to go. You know, basically she sent me to all the little places that she didn't really necessarily want to go to. A little more, a little roughing it. She wanted to do speaking and training and stuff and not so much of the on the ground consulting kind of stuff. So I just started doing all of these projects um, that, uh, basically put me in the field directly with the farmers and trying to figure out practical application of the, the concepts, you know, utilizing soil microbiology, looking at the practices, the tools and all those things and just learn by doing, you know, it was really, really a hands-on, a very practical. And I look at everything and I say, okay, this is a good idea. Can we make it easier? <laughs> Can we make it more simple, more accessible to the farmers? You know, we've done, done the composting, compost teas, compost extracts, looking at all the different types of soil amendments. And that's um, that experience led me to um, expand the, the reach and the scope of what we were doing. And so I formed Earth Fort as a company to address the practical side. What are the products? What are the tools that are available to farmers? How can we how can we make sure that what they're getting is working and doing well? So, and then leveraging the lab as well to make sure everything that we said that we're doing is actually working. So using the lab and just going out and researching products and finding things. So, you know, very practical, you know, and does no-till really work? Let's find out. Let's do some, let's let's look at that and see what the, the answer to that is very, very complicated um, to that kind of question. And I'm sure that'll that'll come up later. But so so that was my journey. And I just, you know, I've been expanding the reach and trying to find ways. You know, I've been trying to get to Africa for almost 30 years, and it was only just last year that I was finally able to go. So I've got a, a education project I'm working on in Uganda, and then in Kenya we're working on getting some of the products uh, to the to the farmers, and then I've got um, you know we've got contacts in Rwanda and Zambia, Tanzania, looking at Ethiopia, South Sudan, so that kind of East Africa area. Plus, I'm trying to get um, things going in Europe, working with Soilify, you know, and. Anya does say hello, by the way. <laughs> that's good. I'll reach out to her again after this <laughs> yeah. and thank her for the yeah. connection. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So anyway, so, you know, it, it goes on and on. There's all kinds of projects, all kinds of little things that I've done that really, you know, outside of, but always correlated to soil health, you know, and then looking at that as probably, at least for me, the most pressing issue that I see that I can make a difference. And I think that that's what's important to me is that there is this opportunity to, um, everybody has a role to play, I think, you know? And so my role is soil and doing things and helping the farmers, but in a very practical way, you know, not interested in making huge sweeping changes to, um, you know, the bureaucratic approach 
um, legislation and all those things, although I support people who do it. You know, I'm really, I'm really in it. The, the farmers in Africa are really, I'm really keen on because it's like two acres of farm land is average, you know, and there's thousands of them and a small change in one farm has a ripple effect. Mm. And because they're so community oriented, you know, more often than not, we just go in and talk to the village elders and that whole village will transform. So mm-hmm. anyways, that's, yeah. That's remarkable. That's such a cool story. And it's very different from how a lot of people, especially on the research and development side of agricultural products have started out. Having not gotten your degree in that specific area and having trained mostly out in the field, I'm curious to go back a little bit. What were some of the most impactful experiences and jobs that you got to go out on in those early days that shaped the way that you approach let's say the research portion, the advice that you give, how you build a project and build solutions with people. Yeah. um, Wow. That's, there's some really cool ones. I think one of the biggest projects I worked on was also one of the, the most learning. (laughs) Um, So there was a project that we were involved with in Ukraine. It was a hundred thousand hectares. Wow of um a farm that was under management from a european company so this group out of out of the netherlands and what i learned there was scale you know if you want to do you know it's one thing to say you need a ton of compost per acre it's another thing to say you need a hundred thousand tons of compost for this farm you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about, you know, oh, you need, you know, 10, 20 gallons of a, of a tea or an extract or something. Very simple, you know, certainly, you know, very doable at small scale. But when you start scaling up into this huge, I mean, it was, it, it was so big, you literally couldn't drive it in a day, right? Wow. You couldn't visit the farm, all the, all the fields and everything. So now it turned into a logistics question. How do we scale this? And also the other thing I learned too was to really rely on the farmer and the local knowledge about the farming practices, you know, to listen, (laughs) to listen, you know, and then, and then figure out what are the tools? What are the approaches? What are the kinds of things you know, and what are their real goals? So I started developing this whole idea of, um, I started working on, you know, holistic management and looking at, you know, critical thinking as, as a tool for, well, what's really going on here and how do we apply some of these principles and what are the other things that we're missing? Can we find other pieces that not just our own knowledge base, but what are other people doing? So that I learned a lot about culture. Um, it's it's really fun. That was uh, Ukraine in 2007, so it wasn't very long after uh, they they were released from their um, Soviet relationship. <laughs> and so so the culturally, it was very fascinating to to learn about that. And so I started becoming very sensitive 
to when I go into a project learning about, you know, scale, people, because it's about, all about the farmer. It's not really about the soil. Mm -hmm. you know, it's all about the farmer. Right. You could fix anything food. with the soil, but if the farmer is going to go right back to the same management, what did yeah, you do? Yeah. Or, or if they have if they have other ideas and you're not listening, mm. it, it, you it derails it. You know, um, that's why it's just important to listen a lot. So really, truly becoming a consultant um, in the sense of I have a set of knowledge. I want to listen to what you're doing and then figure out together how to how to apply what I know and integrate it with what you know. And so Ukraine was big. That was a big lesson. I learned a lot in, you know, sugarcane in Nicaragua was fun. That was also a very large scale project. And it was, um, yeah, again, culturally, but also just, just scale. That was like one of the really big things that I started really looking at. It's like, even, even in Africa, even though I'm only working with farmers that maybe have an average of two acres or a hectare, um, you know, there's literally millions of them. Yeah. So that's a different over scale. Over two thirds of the world's farming population is on five acres or less, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, so it's, it's not that the individual farmer has a scale problem, but uh, that's what I'm learning in Kenya, though, is that, yeah, there's, you know, conventional agricultural practices. You're looking at two, three hundred kilos per acre of inorganic fertilizer is the typical application rate. And so, you know, then you start looking at that scale, even at that, you know, it's like, well, who, how are they getting that? How is it even possible if you've never been to Africa? or some of these other parts of the world where, you know, the infrastructure isn't there. Yeah. So that was part of the logistics too, is infrastructure. Ukraine has bad roads. Kenya has horrible roads. Uganda is impossible. Um, Haiti is just crazy with, you know, it, as the crow flies, it's 45 miles, but it takes six hours to get where you're trying to go. You know, and that yeah. kind of stuff. I've lived in those know? countries too. I know yeah. exactly how that is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, but yeah, Ukraine was a big one, but then I also did projects like um, working on a project with Fukushima and radiation mm. uh, cleanup and things like that, and different kinds of remediation. And that's a whole different realm of um, science working with, scientists crop, crop production is not the goal there crop production ultimately is the goal you know can we put this land uh, back to clean into up the a, contaminated soils I yeah guess. because that was you know and it wasn't just the radiation it was also the flooding ocean water flooded a third of japan's rice fields right with so ocean water yeah. yeah so so can we clean that up you know, and that was, that was a fun, that's a fun project. It's still ongoing. Um, sadly, the person I was working with there uh, passed away. And mm. so the project stopped. But, you know, it doesn't really matter anyways, because in Fukushima, they don't have the reactors shut down yet. So cleanup is kind of a misnomer. <laughs> <laughs> sure. 
because damage it's like yeah it's not as bad i mean it's not as acutely bad as it was initially but it's certainly there's they still have an ongoing problem so any cleanup you do today is probably not gonna it's not gonna last man that's tricky yeah so that's just an ongoing issue Um, what were some of the conclusions that you came from these projects of scale like you said it's not feasible to do hundreds of thousands of tons of compost for that large of fields what were some of the conclusions you came to yeah so so pick your battles (laughs) is one um you know on a hundred thousand hectares the question isn't how do we treat the whole farm how do we treat everything but to say what areas need the most help where can we focus our efforts if we got you know is there a thousand hectare section that really needs a lot of help and maybe the rest of them are doing well you know also hybrid systems is really that's a lot of my customers are doing hybrid systems where they're using it's not organic and it's not fully regenerative but it's it's a combination of things where you're utilizing biological principles and chemistry principles together um, so that you can manage to grow a lot of it like in illinois we work with a lot of soy and corn and most of those systems are hybrid you know um, where they reduce the amount of fertilizers they're using and they reduce the amount of pesticides and herbicides so so we learned that you know you can't always treat everything you know you can't always and also, um, you know, really looking at the, the principles and, and uh, trying to figure out, you know, can we concentrate this stuff? Can we get biology into a system that isn't, you know, so use so much water, you know, or utilize, uh, you know, so can we concentrate things and also finding the tools that, that, will help the system work itself, you know? So compost, you know, if you can't do a ton of compost per acre, maybe you can turn that ton of compost into an extract and liquefy it and get the biology out. And then at that point, can I I do five or 10 or less acre, uh, gallons per acre um, and get biology into the system if you need it? That's the other thing, too, is that testing is really helpful to determine, do I even need to add biology, you know, or is the biology there and it just needs a help, you know, Mm -hmm. or is there something going on in the soil that's limiting the function, you know, so that's what we're doing in Africa. It's like they don't need biology specifically. They just need help getting, getting, getting it kickstarted, you know, and so, you know, really and then practices like change what you're doing and and get out of the way <laughs> you know that's a big part of it i think that's where regenerative agriculture really starts to come into its own you know but then you've got this uh then you've got time scale right now you've got another logistics issue is if i stop tilling how long will it take for the system to start functioning the way i want it to hmm. You know, and and if that's the only thing I do, or am I doing other things to support it? Yeah. You know, yeah. So, 
Man, okay, yeah. so there's there's so many things I want to start with here. <laughs> <laughs> I, because soil science is, as far as I understand it, such an emerging and constantly growing field at the moment. Sure. Everybody who studies this at a professional level that I've talked to says that we're just on the cusp of understanding this ecosystem below our feet. What mm -hmm. are some of the principles, patterns, or key bits of information that you think are important for us, well, the general public to be aware of before we start these more complex conversations about what to do with it? Yeah. So, yeah, so this is a conversation I have all the time. You know, I work with agronomists and soil scientists, as well as the farmers, the distributors, people who are trying to sell products, people who are trying to promote ideas. And, and it is very complex. I mean, soil, you know, when you start digging into it, it is, it is incredibly complex. And then you start putting in plant-soil interactions, the, all the microbes, you know, ecosystem function, all these things. So there's, for me, there's, there's, there's layers, right? There's, you know, at the core fundamental layer is the farmer interacting with his land. And it's, it's all about very practical, very intuitive knowledge, you know, and we've lost that. The farmers have lost a lot of that intuitive, uh, knowledge that they had, they managed, you know, we've been doing agriculture for a very long time. And when I look at, you know, the reality of the history of agriculture, more often than not, it's a natural disaster or some shift that caused the system to fail. Mm. Right. There's a, there's a really great book. It's really fascinating. It's a very interesting perspective. It's uh, Dr. David Montgomery wrote a book called Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations. A very interesting perspective. And I'm sure that there's a lot of that is true in that, you know, farming practices were working and then they didn't work. And then the civilization collapsed. Right. There's a lot of They're that. They're unable to adapt fast enough to the change. It's it, it's because something changed in the natural world and they weren't in their their intuitive knowledge didn't allow them to. They didn't have resilience or adaptability built into it. They just did what they did. And when it changed, they were unable to to keep up. So. So that but that intuitive knowledge is there and people know how if they learn how to be adaptable, they can they can manage it. But, you know, yeah, it just gets so complex. So the, the real answer to the question from my perspective is I want to know when I'm working with a farmer, what I want to know as at the very, very basic level, do you have biology? And the answer is yes, always. If it's a farm and plants were growing in it or are growing in it, you have biology. Okay, there are a few places in the world where that's not the case. <laughs> Very few. Yeah. So yes, you have biology, and the you know, and then we start looking at how is it imbalanced? Do you have enough fungi and bacteria? Is it in good balance for for your plants? And and the balance is based off of uh, ecological succession principles. Um, you know, there's people are starting to question that now, you know, as the academics start to, to dig, 
to, to start researching more and more of these ecological systems and niches, you know, the question of soil microbiology balance starts coming in. People are calling it out, you know, mm -hmm. and saying maybe that's not as um, accurate as we thought. But I tell people it was never accurate to begin with. It's a general conception. You know, the higher carbon in the plant, the more fungi it needs. That's the concept right there. That that's all we're looking at. The tree needs more fungi because it needs more carbon. And it needs slightly different nutrient availability than a broccoli, which has very low carbon content, but high nitrogen content. So it needs more bacterial. It, it's a very simple uh, approach because it's, you know, again, it gets complex. The, the more I talk about it, it's going to get more and more complex. But the basic core is, do you have biology? Is it in the right balance? And what is limiting your function, your soil function? So I like to look at pH, electrical conductivity, bacteria and fungal populations is really the core of it. If those things are not broken, so to speak, then you're, you're pointed in the right direction, you know, and then you, you know, there may be contamination. Right. If you've over fertilized for years or over tilled the soil, you may have compaction issues. You may have salt buildup, chemical buildup. Then you just have to start asking questions. How do I remediate that? You know, how do I get that functioning again? And those tools are simple. You know, those things are simple. Uh, academics love to make it really much more complicated because they're actually asking a different question than what a farmer needs to ask. You know, and the, uh, you know, so that's when you move into that new realm, you know, looking at the microbiome, you know, we're doing a lot of that work now. People are, um, you know, doing genetic sequencing, looking at bacteria and fungal population of the whole microbiome. You know, problem with that is, A, it's very fascinating and B, it's very inaccessible. <laughs> it's good for the academics. And it needs to be done. I really believe it needs to be done. We need to be looking at those things. But right now it's kind of in its infancy, you know, and it's not so practical for most farmers and it's expensive. Yeah. You know, the, the work, it's one thing to do the work on a vineyard where, you know, you've got an acre is, could be worth tens of thousands of dollars, you know, but when you're working on an acre in Africa, it's worth, you know, a few hundred dollars if you're on a good day, you know, they're not going to be that interested in doing genomics, but, um, you know, and even chemistry testing, it's like, you know, unless there's something really, really, really wild and wacky about your soil, you probably got plenty of nutrients, you know, you're just not available, right? So it's, you know, that's something that I think a lot of people miss is when they do CEC testing or some other type of chemistry testing, they're not looking at what's actually there. More often than not, they remove the organic matter before they do the, the chemistry test. Well, that's where a lot of your nutrients are, is in the organic matter and in the biology that, that lives there. Um, so, you know, chemistry testing is very limiting, I think. And it's just, you know, so... So looking at it 
from the perspective of, look, you got all the science, people are studying things, you know, now they're finally starting to look at interactions, you know, this bacteria and this bacteria working together or looking at, you know, how does, how does a fungal network uh, impact the bacterial network or the protozoa network and how do nematode populations. So that's all fascinating and really wonderful science, but that's academic. You know, at the end of the day, is it is it going to help a farmer produce better crop? You know, maybe someday that information will be helpful. And for yeah. some people, it may be helpful today. But the reality is, is like, look, you can do some really simple testing at home that tells you enough to help make sure that you're on the right path. You know, we're not trying. That's one thing I've really learned because I still run the lab here and have have been running it basically for 20 years is that testing is only as good as what you're willing to do with it mm. you know and a lot of the testing that we've done here is actually academic level research it's research level testing and so finding more practical ways to make testing accessible to the farmer has been a real um something that I've been really working on the last few years is to find a way, how do I, how do I get, you know, cause even just sending a sample to us from Kenya, for example, it, it can take a month and it's a ton of paperwork, you know, <laughs> and uh, it's not easy. Because a lot of this is academic information and while it might be useful to you, doesn't necessarily justify the cost, the complexity or the time put in for a farmer, especially based on how much or let's say economic yield they could get in return for this information. What are the bare minimum tests, investigations, observations that you help someone else with uh, just to get the necessary information that they can use in a practical way to make decisions yeah. and adjust management on their farm? Yeah. So we've actually developed the field lab um, that, that answers those questions specifically. So the first thing is to walk across the field and look at it. You know, I, I can't tell you how many farmers say, okay, look at your field. What do you see? Just look, it tells you so much. Oh, I've got all these different types of weeds. Okay. Well, maybe you should research what those weeds mean. Hmm rather than trying to figure out which herbicide to use, to actually ask the question, what is this weed telling me? What is dandelion telling me? What is thistle? What are nettles? What are you know these different types of plants that we don't want? What are they actually telling us? So, you know, and, and the soil, you know, just look at the soil. You can tell a lot from just the texture and the feel of it, right? So- Well, here, look, before we move on from the weeds thing, because this is really important and I completely agree with you, there is a yeah. lot of debate as to where to find good information on how to read your weeds. There have been books written. There are some resources in different languages. Where do you go to investigate weeds? I, you know, I just, I just go on the internet and, and look up the weed, you know, and then start sifting. One of the biggest challenges right now <clears throat> in the information age is finding good information, like Indeed. you say. So that's a that's a whole nother skill set. You know, yeah. it's amazing to me how many people can't find an answer on the internet because they don't know how to search. 
and they don't know what kind of questions to ask. You know, or so, filter through the or, loads or of nonsense to, that come up in a search. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's always, you know, it's it's pretty easy once you start really thinking about it. And that's really thinking is probably the most important test. Mm -hmm. You know, use use your brain, you know, use your <laughs> eyes, use your senses. I'm very much into, you know, phenomenology. What is actually what are you actually experiencing and seeing? You know, yeah, it turns out we have some very sensitive instruments and equipment attached to our bodies that many of us aren't trained to actually use. Yeah, yeah, you know, including our eyes and ears. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what are you actually seeing? So, so finding that information, all I do is, if I'm not familiar with it, I just look it up and try and get a sense of, you know, is it an annual or perennial? Those, those those really important to know the distinction there um, because it changes how you approach it. Is it rhizobia? Is it a rhizob type of plant where it, where it propagates through the roots? Rhizomus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, rhizomus. Um, you know, and then I try and figure out, well, what's the, what's the characteristic nutrient or characteristic habitat? You know, just trying to figure out, is this, you know, is it a weed that likes really rich soil or is it a weed that likes really depleted soil because it turns out weeds grow everywhere all the time in every condition there's there's no such thing as a you know but there are concepts within the the successional idea of pioneer species versus you know is it is it border species that lives on the edge you know is it common with grasses or is it more common with shrubs you know, is it a desert plant? You know, does it need a lot of water or does it need less water? You know, those kind of things. You, if you look enough, uh, just enough, you know, and it doesn't take long to just kind of vet it out a little bit and see, you know, and I get opinions. I look at academic publications, if there's anything about that weed. And I also look up like the, you know, home gardener, you know, the farmer's almanac kind of stuff. Oh, sure. You know, yeah. where where it's like, okay, what's the what's the traditional wisdom? You know, the other thing that's really interesting is to look up what's the medicinal value of that plant, because that tells you a lot too about the kind of nutrients that it likes and um, things like that. So what you know, so herbology, you know, ancient, uh, you know, older types of traditions, you know, and it. It doesn't take long. You know, I think a lot of people think it takes a lot of time to do research, but the internet makes it so easy to just pop in the name, you know, and then once you, if you have a common name, look up the common name and then search the scientific name. Yeah. That's the other thing too, because there's a lot of things that are commonly named the same and they represent five or six different plants. Sure. Just depends on where you are regionally. You know, so so you got to be careful with common names, you know, figure out what you're actually working with. So, you know, in my opinion with weeds is that, um, you know, unless they're actually interfering with your crop, they're probably not a problem. You know, weed weed pressure comes from over fertilization of bad soil. Mm. You know, 
and there's nutrient cycling aspects, you know, the chemistry, the pH of the soil has a big impact on whether or not your corn is going to be successful or your, or your broadleaf, you know, uh, weed, you know, so it's, it's very important to uh, pay attention, research a little bit and see this, is this, is this actually, you know, cause there's a lot of myths out there about weeds and, um, and stuff. And I, and I don't want to get into that too much because that's, that's a politically charged <laughs> area, but, but essentially, you know, the way we farm these days is really conducive to weed production. When we disturb the soil and we spray these, you know, we over apply inorganic fertilizers. That actually is really, the weeds love that. You know, that's why then we need herbicides to control them long enough for our main crop to get established, you know, and we do all these funny things to try and manage it when really the solution is probably much more simple, but I'll just say it, it doesn't, it doesn't make money, um, yeah. you know, and at least not for the people selling all the tools that, that are doing that kind of work, not to say that you never need them. You know, those tools can be really helpful saving a crop, you know, but, you know, it shouldn't be plan A. <laughs> yeah, it shouldn't be plan A. So, you know, when you're looking at the, you know, beyond that, when you're looking at a soil, you know, obviously just looking at it, observing what's growing, doing a little research to kind of give you a sense of what's what might be happening. Then, you know, there's a little EC and pH meter you can get prep your soil and you can measure your electrical conductivity, which is really just telling you your salt content. Do I have too much or too little, you know, available salt, you know, and it's like ions. It's like, um, you know, the electrolytes of the soil is, is what it's measuring. So you can tell pretty quickly if you've got excess, it goes, just goes really high. And if mm -hmm. it's low, it just means that there's not a lot of movement, you know, it's not available pH obviously has some big impacts on how the nutrient cycle works, but really I'm only looking at it, not from a chemistry perspective, but from the biological perspective. You know, if it's too high or too low a pH, it inhibits microbial activity. And if the EC is too high or too low, then the food is either limiting, it's too much salt is limiting microbial activity and too little, they don't have food. To work with so those are you know really simple easy things uh to measure you know and just keep it keep those in mind when you're working on your solutions right and then the bacteria and fungi so you know here's here's a promotional plug for microbiometer yeah so i've company, tested out that one pretty extensively yeah. So it's a company based in New York that developed, basically what they've developed is a, um, they're using spectrophytometry to analyze the density of the microbes in a sample. And this is, this is pretty old. Um, it's been around for a while, this kind of technology of measuring biological content through density. And what they've been able to do is develop a system that uses the cell phone to measure it instead of a big fancy spectrophytometer. Now, I'll be honest, I was not a big fan at first. 
until I figured out some things and actually talked to them about what they're doing and how they're doing it and realizing that they made some assumptions early on with the way they, they their algorithms for converting the numbers was a little off, you know? And so we actually started collaborating with them using direct microscopy comparisons, as well as they used other, they compared it to other methods. And we're, they're in the process of completely revamping their whole algorithms and adjusting for newer phones. There's some issues with the newer phone cameras that they had to adjust for. But we figured out, you know, it's been working great for almost, we've been using it exclusively for two years now to test total bacteria and total fungi populations. But we had to make some tweaks to it. Mm -hmm. So those tweaks are, there's a new version of the app, which is much better than it was. Um, it's, and it's, they're factoring out, they're refactoring a lot of their assumptions based on our collaboration. So I'm really excited about that. And they have, you know, they're, they're just doing a lot of work to make it even better. Um, and, you know, the simple, the simple thing was, is that it was working really well for composts, um, worked great. It was so, it was so close. It was hardly worth even mentioning. Right. And again, I'm not a really detailed science guy. I'm not, I don't do this from, uh, you know, that it has to be within plus or minus 0.1% or something like that. It's, you know, it's within five to 10% of what we were getting in the lab. And I was like, you know what, based on cost, time, and all that, that's in the information that it provides the farmer doesn't change yeah. with that small of a difference. What we found was with the soils, they were, they were using the same algorithm as they were using for compost on a soil, which was um, basically they were assuming too much moisture content in the soil. So composts can be 40 to 50% moisture. Soils on an average, and I've done 30,000 soil tests over the years. Um, you know, most soils are, you know, a lot of them are more like 10% moisture content. You know, some of them are 30, you know, maybe 40, right. depending on, but the average across all of them is about 20%. So when we change the assumption, on the moisture content, all of a sudden the soils started working. Uh -huh. uh, so we we're getting the right kinds of numbers and, and stuff. And it's like, ah, okay, that's, that's good. And then there was a couple other little things that were, they're tweaking with the algorithms. So, but that is a tool that if you have your cell phone and this, the microbiometer stuff, you can do the test in practically real time in the field and give the farmer the answer right then. You know, when I was in Kenya, one of the biggest complaints was that, um, you know, they want to be able to test their soils, but they were talking about chemistry, you know, so that we can put the right fertilizer down. I said, well, what if you didn't have to test for chemistry and could put the right tools down that, that supported your soil instead of, you know, and then let the soil support your plant? So then we started testing and, they, and the cost is so expensive to get chemistry testing done in Kenya and you have to ship it off even within the country. And you, it could take four to six weeks to get results back from a lab, you know, at that point, overworked. that snapshot is almost useless. 
yeah by then they're it's they've already moved on you know they yeah. have to do they, they don't have that much lead time uh in their growing seasons so when we show up with the field kit pull the soil sample prep it do the measurement and say this is where you're at and this is the kind of things that you should be thinking about to help support this and um yeah it's just it's just great they they absolutely love it and uh, so that's one of the models that we're building is uh, in Kenya, we have this idea of training youth to do the soil testing and to give them the toolbox of what are the tools that the farmer might need based on the testing. And then they can go out. And so this, our, our uh, pilot project is a young man on a motorcycle with an agronomy degree trained up in the biological approach uh, goes on his motorcycle, drives to the farm, does the soil test right there, gives them the result. The, the, and then, um, then he also has product with him that might or might not be something the farmer needs. Yeah. And because uh, one of the products that I developed is instead of hundreds of kilos per acre, it's half a kilo per acre. And put that in place, and it replaces all of their inorganic fertilizer. That's and radical. Was, okay, before we get into the yeah the products themselves, yeah. So we just kind of covered the basics of the essential tests, the indicators that you're looking for, so that you can mm -hmm. start to make management decisions. How are you deciphering these different results and extrapolating information or actions from them? Well. You know, it's it's pretty simple. If the pH is too high or too low, if the EC is too high or too low, and you need to do something to adjust the salt content, you know, and I can talk about that more with the product that we that I developed to help address these. But in a lot of cases, um, you know, look at the water, look at your water source. If you're irrigating, that could be a cause of a lot of problems. Um, is the is the water any good um, add organic matter to the soil start doing compost um, look at how you know there's there's lots of little practices all the little practices so we talk about can you make a little can you make your own compost in a reasonable amount of time to introduce organic matter to the system to help start buffering you know buffering those things and give the habitat right then with bacteria and fungi, it's kind of the same thing, but it's like, well, if you're low in fungi, which is more often the case uh, than not, um, you know, you need to add some carbon into the soil somehow, you know, give it some, you know, again, compost with some woody content, even wood chips, chopped up, dried plant material worked into the soil, um, stop tilling it. That's a big one. You know, we're really promoting no slash and burn. Right. That's a big one, especially in the in the tropic south, you know, South yeah. America, Central America, mm -hmm. not so much in Africa, but at least where we've been working. No slash and burn and don't overwork the land. Don't don't break it up so much, you know, and they never till at the right time because there's one tractor to serve 100 farmers. Oh, sure. And so that farm that tractor just, you know, it's contracted by the farmers and he just drives around and tills the fields. And he gets to it when he gets to it, <laughs> you know, 
I just hope that he doesn't come after they planted for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> you know, communication is really important. Um, you know, so just simple practices, you know, reduce, reduce inputs. And often, you know, they'll, they'll, the inorganic fertilizers, even if they can get them, you know, they're causing more problems than they're helping usually. They just don't know it because they get a plant response. But then, you know, it it's less and less every year. So that's where a lot of them are at, especially with the change in the weather patterns there in that region, you know, and, and everywhere, actually. Everything, things are changing everywhere, you know. Is it call it global warming is not the right terminology, but you know, certainly climate change. Things are changing. Yeah. So yeah. gotta be gotta be paying attention to not the political side of it, but the practical side of it. What am I gonna do in the face of changing weather patterns? Indeed. That's what's important. So yeah. and building building resilience for those inevitabilities within the soil that yeah. you're working with. Yeah, and if you're if you're monitoring your soil like this. You know, where you can at least once a year say, Am I, is my bacteria and fungi working? Is the, is the EC and pH doing well? This, is the weed pressure less? You know, is, or is it changed? You know, do I have different weeds now? That happens a lot. <laughs> where, you know, we start doing this stuff, the weeds change. Sure. You're moving through you know. a different ecological succession. Yeah. You need yeah. to you just... see the signals that tell you where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. And when the weeds are the, exactly the same conditions as your crop, then you need to figure out how to make money from your weeds. <laughs> yeah. And so what does the research and development process look like when you started to gather, you know, 30,000 soil tests and been to so many different parts of the world and probably start to see some patterns of what mm -hmm. people are dealing with? What yeah. are the common things? I assume that's what you're trying to solve for when you're developing products. What does that process look like? What are you solving for and how long does it take? You know, for me, um, it's, I've been, you know, developing my own products now for about 12 years, I think, 10 to 12, 13 years. You know, the first thing was scalability. You know, how do we, you know, getting people a biological inoculant is one of the biggest, earliest things that I did. We did tea compost tea, compost extract, composting, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of products out there. You can buy individual bacteria, you can buy fungi, uh, you can, you can do ferments, you know, very limited set of species, Bokashi, EM, uh, effective microorganisms, you know, all of these great tools, great tools, but the diversity isn't there. And not everybody is uh, capable or in a position to be able to do any or all of those things. You know, I worked with farmers, you know, even with only a thousand acres, you know, if you're doing compost tea, you need, um, you know, the recommended application rate is 10 to 20 gallons per acre. So now you got to produce 10 to 20,000 gallons of a product, right? And you know, even with a thousand gallon brewer, you know, you're looking at 10 batches, 20 batches of, of material that you need to produce. It takes time. It can take up to three days to produce a batch. And then you've got a very narrow window for application. 
And if something goes wrong, which is very easy, then you, you have to scrap it and start over. So that was one of the first challenges. And, and so I started looking at the biology that's in a tea, what makes it good, what makes it bad, what makes it effective, and started experimenting. It took me a long time because it was it was not a full-time R&D process. It was just me tinkering with stuff, looking at things. So I needed to address a couple of questions. One was concentration. Can I get it more concentrated? Can I get it stable enough to be able to make it and ship it? Can, can I bottle it? Can I stick a label on it and get it registered with the, um, with the states as a product? Because we're running into a lot of um, situations like in California where they would love to be able to do a biological approach, but they need, they need an MSDS sheet. They need the material safety data sheet. They need a label. They need to know what's in it. They need it to be registered in order to you know, for the government to sign off on it or, or these different things. So really that was the first challenge. And so I created a product called Soil Provide. Shelf stable for years. I've got a bottle that I made in 2011 that's still good. Hmm. You know, it's sitting in my office here. It's just, I test it every, every couple of years now and say, okay, what's, what's going on in there now? <laughs> um you know, I found a way to stabilize it without killing everything, having good diversity. So it's not fermented. It's not, it's not cultured. It's, it's a naturally derived set of organisms and bacteria and fungi. And just um, focused on how concentrated can I make it? So right now it's a gallon per acre application rate, but I've got some new equipment, processing equipment, on its way and i think i could get it down to a pint an mm -hmm. acre of a biological inoculant you know and so it's it's the density of the microbes and the ability to keep it stable um, and get it registered so that was a big challenge it took time and as soon as that product came out you know i what i ended up doing was um, helping a lot of my clients of the past sell off their equipment for tea brewing you know, so I had one guy, he had 300 gallon tea brewer and he had um, 2000 acres of farmland. So he was able, he's like, okay, I can buy eight totes, 8,000 gallons of your product and it's ready to go when I am. And that was a big consideration, the logistics of it, getting sure. it to them. Sure. And then it sits. If you have a rain event, you can't drive on the field you know, or something happens and you have to wait a week or two before you can go out and apply or, you know, equipment breaks down, things happen, right? So with, with tea and, and other things like that, where there's no shelf life, it's very challenging. So this changed the game for a lot of producers, you know, and, and now we're selling, I don't, I don't even, I haven't even looked at how much we've sold this year, you know, of that product to these larger American farms. Now that doesn't help the farmer in in Kenya, but it's it's a U.S. product. You know, it doesn't. I can't ship it outside of the U.S. You know, this is the biology. But I am working with uh, groups in in Africa as well as in Europe to maybe develop uh, production in those regions so that they can make their own version of it, um, possibly. But then the other tool 
there's another tool that I created that's the food resource. So when you look at the history of soil microbiology, Dr. Ingham's work, the whole um, compost tea evolution, you know, there's just kind of the short list of things that everybody says you need, right? You need fish hydrolysate, you need kelp, you need humic acid, you know, you need, um, that's pretty much it. That's, those are the three big ones, right? That um, everybody kind of utilizes. There's, everybody has all their little tips and tricks. Some people really like silica and other mm -hmm. things, you know, it just depends. It, often it depends on the crop too. But, you know, I started vetting out all of those ingredients um, and testing them. So I, I tested, I don't know, 40 or 50 different humic acid products. I tested, I tested so many fish products, um, you know, and shipped to me from all over the world, right? And uh, just, okay, who's making the best fish, you know, and mm -hmm. who's making the best you know, we even tested out molasses, you know, that's another one that a lot of people utilize. And, you know, I learned a lot in the process of doing that. And the biggest learning was that none of these products are the same ever. They have the same name, but they're not the same. They're, they're all radically different. It depends on how they're produced, who's producing them, what's the source material, what other things do they do to it? None of them are the same. And not all of them work, sure. <laughs> you know, so, so I've edited it out. And so what I did was I went around and just, I collected, I had to answer questions that, um, A, I needed all uh, powder-based products. I couldn't use liquid-based uh, products um, because of transportation costs yeah you know shipping around liquids and you know and and also and also handling and um you know it's just in not very concentrated a lot of these things so i started researching soluble powders so that i could package it up into um as concentrated a thing as i could and then i created a blend of those things that i found that was the right blend and so so there's two products that I have now. It's called Soil Revive. That is the humic acid, kelp, and amino acid profile and complex carbohydrates. And, and the thing is, is that what we're looking at is micronutrients for the biology. That's part of it to feed the biology. But the other part of it is, is I need a humic acid that actually can neutralize salt and chelate nutrients. And that was the hard part is finding one that actually did that the way it's supposed to in a, in a very concentrated form. So going in and addressing the salt and pH issues with a good humic acid, complex carbohydrates, amino acid profile to help feed and stimulate fungi. And then kelp is micronutrients, you know, and uh, food. And it's really synergistic with those things. And then the, the newest product that I created, this is what I'm taking to Africa. Also, I include a small amount of sea minerals. So um, dried, dried sea salt, basically it's sea salt, really low concentration um, because it has all of the micronutrients, like 90 some odd nutrient. And just content. trace element quantities. Yeah, in the trace, yeah, just tiny, tiny amounts. Mm -hmm. So it's more, I don't want to say it this way, but it's more like a homeopathy the type yeah, yeah, of yeah. approach um you know but then i also found a, a powdered fish that works it smells awful 
but it works <laughs> really well and it's and it's highly concentrated so i can add the fish in along with the other ingredients to create basically that we're selling it as um, a soil fertilizer instead of a plant fertilizer and so we're going in and feeding the the biology feeding the soil and starting to repair some of those major things and that one took a while because the fish component was i couldn't find a fish that worked um, you know in a dry soluble form so well, so it sounds like you have done very extensive research, not only on the other products that are out there, but you breezed over things like, uh, well, I don't know what's the, if it was um, uh, Bokashi and different compost. Oh, making. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've gone into things like uh, biochar and these other oh, yeah. that have become different types of yeah, yeah. and promises. What has been your overall impression of those? You You hinted that they work in their own ways, but are insufficient. Are there any that yeah. are really up to snuff or do um, they need to be combined? You know, I think they're all tools. Even my own products are only a tool in a, in a system, in, in a whole uh, holistic system. In some cases, something like Bukashi may be really appropriate or EM. Uh, biochar, biochar is like compost. It's, it's so variable. You know, you can make you know, compost is almost impossible to ever duplicate. You know, you never make the same compost twice and it's sure, easy sure. to screw it up. Yeah. Biochar works great in some cases and not so great in other cases. And it's like, you know. What are the cases that you've seen that effectively change things? When the, when when they are incredible, like sandy soil, it's incredibly low in um, organic material, a small amount of biochar. Also, I've seen it in potting mixes where it's like five to 10% of the blend in a potting soil uh, for container growers. I think it's a really effective uh, component, but it, it depends pH, the source materials, how is it pyrolyzed? You know, all of those factors go into, you know. So, what I tell people when they're looking at it is I say, well, you know, you got to try out a few different brands. Mm and see which one works for you, you know? And I tell people the same thing, even with our own products. I'm like, look, I don't say that my product is the solution to all of your problems. It's a tool to help you with some of your problems. And some clients we have, it's like, you don't even need my product. Don't, mm -hmm. you don't need it, don't use it. Um, you know, you need to do other things. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work, you know, just depends. There's, there's certain, there's very rare actually i don't i've seen it not work so um <laughs> but uh i i don't assume that it's a perfect uh solution so all of those things they're all tools they're all different ways of approaching biology and the thing that is um important i think is looking at them and saying okay if it is bringing a broad spectrum of diversity you know, or it's specifically addressing um, a population that I might need, then great, That that's, those are two tools. You know, you can buy trichoderma, for example, um, one type of fungi, and in large quantities, it can help with fungal diseases. You know, in small amounts, it's naturally occurring. It's probably already there, it just isn't doing its job, you know, for whatever reason. 
you know, start thinking about that. Why is the disease prevalent and working and my other biology is not? It's probably diversity issue, you know, more than anything else. So, you know, think of diversity, think of what's the function of it. You know, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of crazy home remedies out there, you know, people doing all kinds of stuff. And it's like, look, those are, those are probably fine, but are they commercially scalable? Are they practical for, for farmers to actually implement, you know, um, not to, not to call anybody out by name, but there's people promoting adding milk. I just, I saw a commercial, there's a plant app that helps you grow. And one of the things that they say just in the ad is to put milk into your soil Raw for milk. your plant. Uh, just, yeah, just, just milk. You know? okay. yeah. And uh, it doesn't say what kind of milk, it just says to add milk and it's lactobacillus. So there's certain things that, um, that may be helpful there's a, there's probably, there's casium and some calcium and stuff in the milk, but you know, is that practical for a farmer to, to be applying milk to their field? Yeah. You know? And do they know why, you know, that's the other, the other thing. Um, so yeah, all those other things, they're just tools. I, I look at everything as a tool and every client I work with, you know, they're like, um, you know, I work with a lot of biodynamic uh, farmers you know, I don't tell them that what they're doing is right or wrong. I just help them understand, you know, what's going on. And if they can start asking the question, is this thing that I'm doing actually making a difference? Yeah. You know, can you answer that question? If you can't answer that question and you're just doing it as a cultural practice, the next question is, is it doing any harm? Yeah. Right. You know, and if it's not hurting anything and you like doing it, and it makes you happy, then then keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> right. You yeah. know, there's no reason. But if you're looking start. for a particular outcome, make sure that you're measuring the progress towards that. Yeah. Measure the progress, that, you know. Yeah. yeah. And and start asking questions, you know, is um, yeah, it's it's always about asking questions. And then there's there's always the opportunity to go deeper and broader with testing. You know, a lot of a lot of the clients I work with. You know, they're, they're applying products and then they're testing the actual plant nutrient value, right? And that's, that's when you start getting into another level of, of the farming is saying, is the nutrient density, am I getting the nutrients that I want? It is like if I'm doing forage for cattle, am I getting the right kind of nitrogen and am I getting, is there all the other elements there that I need or want, um, for my, for my feed, you know? And so if you're measuring that, then you start asking questions, well, what can I add to my system that doesn't hurt the biology that could improve my nutrient uptake, you know? And that's the other thing that humic acid helps with is, is it helps with nutrient uptake in the plants chelates the salts, nutrient uptake, and then we stimulate the biology to do its job, right? So, and in the U.S., we need biology because of the way they farm. Yeah, The biology is really low. In Africa, they don't need the biology so much because they haven't done the damage. It's not as, not as... Uh, Mostly through, yeah. through chemicals and heavy tillage you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, chemicals, mostly the chemicals. Most of them can't afford it, so we don't have yeah. to worry about that too much. <laughs> 
So we just talked about all of the different products and things mm -hmm. that you can make, um, some of the elements that can move things forward in a positive way as far as soil function. What about practices? What about ways of managing your ecology that yeah. is the other side of the coin towards getting absolutely to, to work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, adopting conservation tilling is really probably the core foundation for most farmers is to look at the way they're managing the physical structure of the soil and that habitat for the microbes. I'm not necessarily specifically a no-till guy um, when it comes to that, because I think in some cases a little, you know, and there's also, yeah, a little tilling. Is not just one thing, right? We can talk yeah, about different types of movement. Yeah, it's, there's cultivation, there's, there's harrowing, there's, there's tilling, there's deep ripping, there's all these things. Yeah. You know, the no-till movement is for American farmers who are going in and destroying their soil several times a year, right? It's just pulverizing it, turning yeah. it into dust. Conservation tilling is doing the right amounts at the right time for the right reason. Right. And so you got to think that's the other, the whole the thinking, that's the most important practice is thinking mm. about what you're doing and how it might be impacting what's going on. Working to understand all of the implications of what an action or a product might actually be. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So in, in one of the groups that I work with um, is Partners in Progress. They're uh, based in uh, out of Pittsburgh. U.S., but they do work in Haiti and Uganda and other parts, and they do agroecology training with the farmers. And some of the practices they use, of course, composting is a really good practice. Uh, you know, reduce tilling, reduce. So a lot of it's eliminating practices. You know, the, the most important practice is the one you don't do. Mm. Um, you know, no slash and burn, you know, but then the, they're teaching them how to, like, Contour swaling, they call it key line plowing in other parts of the world where you are using the land to the way you do your planting, following the contours of the land so that you're managing water yeah. better. You know, if you're doing everything in a straight line based on the compass, yeah. then when the water moves through that system, what happens? You know, you lose your crops, you, you get washed away, you get you're designing erosion. for erosion, yeah. Yeah, you're designing for erosion. So this is designing for not erosion. And, um, you know, and it's really simple, too. They've got this really great A-frame system for doing contour swelling. Oh, They've yeah. Got the, the classic. You know, with the, yeah, it's just, it's so great. And it's easy. It's easy. It's low tech. I've made know, so oh. many of those. They're great. Yeah. And, you know, just work in the land. And then also they, um, they do these swales. So they move all the dirt, compost, and, and organic material into these berms that, yep. that follow the contours. So they have a path to walk through. They have a nice uh, berm to um, plant into. And also it holds the water as it moves through. You know, those, and it's really great, really great practices. The other big thing is trees. Planting trees around the farm, uh, especially in a tropical system, you can plant leguminous trees and they grow really fast. They provide shade. And also you can harvest leaves for your compost. So you can, um, you know, after the growing season, you harvest a bunch of leaves. You got your nitrogen source for your compost operation. And those leaves grow back really fast. So 
It also creates habitat for birds and other wildlife, which is really important. Um, companion planting, work integrating animals into the system, uh, all kinds of different things that you can that you can do. But the the biggest one is just just taking care of the soil in a way that allows it to grow and function. You know, that's probably, you know, and I've seen, you know, I was just talking to, to somebody yesterday, they do the lasagna method of uh, soil, you know, bed preparation where they just layer compost and straw and different things and, you know, uh, yep. cardboard or whatever, yep. you know, create a, create layers and then, you know, let it, let it decay. You know, it's basically, it's composting in place. Yes. Um, you know, and, uh, Big fan of that. That's that's great. You know, I've seen some of the you know Korean natural farming practices. You know, with the uh, with the hugel composting and things like that. Um, Brewing you know, of indigenous in, microorganisms, the IMOs. And yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can do that. Um, yeah, IMO. Actually, yeah, I didn't bring that up because it's similar to Bokashi, but yeah, doing that can be really great. I learned about that in Hawaii. I was watching them do it and it's like wow this is really great um you know very simple method you know you know my favorite type of compost is static compost just a bunch of wood chips simple ingredients and then let it sit for a year yeah in a good spot you know and just it's great you know it's easy you know you just you don't have to monitor temperatures and turn it and do all this other and water it and all these things it's <laughs> like you know just too many points of failure Oh, there's, there's so many points of failure, you know, and that's the other thing too, is to realize that the more, you know, you want to have some diversity of practices and tools available to you, but don't overthink it, you know, mm -hmm. think about it, but don't overthink it. I was working with a tomato producer in Mexico who uh, learned about composting and they went out and bought, I think they were, they had 30 different ingredients that were going into their compost. Wow. They had like two different types of bat guano, seabird guano. They had cow manure, they had chicken manure. They had like, you know, five or six different types of wood chips. They were using all this stuff. It's like, um, how, how much did that cost you to get all these materials now? And in the back, they had all of the tomato plants that were waste product oh yeah and they're piling them up in the back in a big heap and i'm like what are you doing with those oh no we don't use those i'm like okay you need to stop right now find some <laughs> really good wood chips and mix it with your tomato waste and then add nitrogen uh if you need it to get it hot and see what happens mm -hmm. they started doing that and it's like all of a sudden now their waste stream is gone they don't have all that waste the disease was killed that's why they weren't using it because they didn't want the disease from the tomato, right? The dead tomato plants to get back into the greenhouses as greenhouse production. But if they compost it properly, they don't have the disease and it became easier and simpler for them to do it and better results. So sometimes simple is easy, the easiest thing to do. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is, you know, an imperfect system or method is better than a perfect one that you abandon. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's part of the reason for keeping yeah. it simple. And you can always build on from there. You can oh yeah, fine tune, you can add steps, but you know, get the basics yeah. down for sure. Yeah. 
And that's, you know, that's what we're doing in Kenya. We're introducing this product to the farmers and they're using it and then they see the results and then they're asking questions. Yeah. Then we can, then we can take them through an education process. Then we can take them and through. You spark the interest there history. first. Yeah. 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 And that's one of the biggest uh, areas of, you know, work with um, one of my distributors works with the regenerative group, you know, groups. And one of the biggest challenges is getting people to adopt these practices and stick to it. Yeah. Because often if all you do is practices, you know, it could take two, three years. Some of the really big uh, examples, you know, are it took them 20 years mm -hmm. to get the farm where they wanted it because, you know, they, they did it slow, methodically, and they had the patience or whatever, or the insanity to stick with it. But most farmers can't afford that, right? They can't right. afford that level of risk. So that's where I think that um, where we can make a real difference for people who are wanting to transition, you know, we've got some tools to help you fix some of those problems, you know, testing, look at what's going on. Here's some products that might help accelerate the process and get you where you need to be transition away from the harmful stuff mm. faster, yeah. right? Get, get into, uh, and, and the other thing too, is like with my products, I, I call them diminishing input material. Um, they are designed to, you know, in certain circumstances, not always appropriate, but, you know, regenerative farming is the idea that your soil should be functional on its own. Right. Yeah. That's the ultimate goal. Now, human beings are involved in that process. You're never going to get there. Okay. Human beings, I don't care how meticulous you are in your practice. If you're planting a crop and harvesting it, you'll never attain a hundred percent regenerative, sustainable system. Because you're always removing something essential from you're, you're taking the cycle. and removing, you're moving through it. And you yeah. know, it's not, you're not if you're restoring a natural system to whatever, then fine. Yeah, of course you can that's that's totally doable. But with farming, so but my tools, you know, a lot of the tools out there, especially the inorganic and even organic fertilizers, you know, you need more and more to get less and less hmm. every year because they're destroying the soil with our products we're trying to use less and less and you get more and more hmm. out of it because the soil becomes more and more functional do you ever stop using these things probably not you know but you could use less every year you know and we start pretty low to begin with so it's um not like uh you know it's a big change you know it's an important difference yeah yeah you know so we are trying to create a product that, you know, I don't expect to work with a client for more than two or three years, mm -hmm. you know, get them where they want to be. The testing, they understand what's going on. If they buy the testing for themselves, then I don't even need to provide that service. And then the products are, could potentially just be a stopgap while they're learning how to make their own compost mm -hmm. or something like that, you know, um, or adopt their own localized resources to to continue sustaining the farm so you know i don't look at it as you know i'm not trying to replace the fertilizer business and trying to usurp it 
Gotcha. <laughs> you know. Well, and so you also put a lot of effort into educational resources. Can you tell yeah. me about what you've developed so far? So um, we do, you know, all through the years, we've always done workshops, you know, anywhere from two days to a week. Um, you know, Dr. Ingham does workshops and online training, which is a whole separate thing. We did uh, a series of webinars during the pandemic. So in 2020, we did a series of 26 webinars, one every week for half a year. It was crazy, the amount of work that we put into that. And we recorded everything. And so that's available on our website. These, uh, to You can purchase modules or you can do the whole thing. And once you get it, you have access to it. Um, and it covers a lot of almost all of these topics that we discussed, you know, looking at the testing, different types of testing, looking at uh, practices as well as the tools and also understanding ecological succession a little deeper, understanding the role and function of the biology, why they're important. Um, we didn't even get into that today, you know, really digging, you know, really looking at you know, why is fungi important and why is it so easily disrupted? You know, those those are topics that we cover. Um, I even, yeah, do a lot. So 26 episodes, <laughs> you know, of live recordings. Just me talking with, a, you know, it's probably 20 people, I think, went through that course with us. So now um, we're working on a book uh, right now, a Living Soils Handbook that we're hoping will be um, available maybe early next year. I've been working on a book for a decade, so it's, you know, don't hold me to any of this. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, just to, just uh, something simple and accessible that, that kind of goes through everything and it's written down and, you know, vetted out and trying to get resources and references. Um, so we also do, you know, we, we have a whole bunch of, resources on our website, like different types of labs, uh, different testing methodologies. So there's links and there's a resource, you know, if you need, you know, heavy metals testing, or if you need, uh, if you do want to do some genomic testing or, you know, different types of testing, um, you know, there's a lot of resources on links to labs that we've worked with or that we appreciate the work that they do, you know. Fantastic. Yeah, it's quite a body of work you put together there. And I'll make sure to link to those on the show notes for, for this episode. Can you tell our listeners how they can get in touch? And well, aside from finding the resources you just mentioned, kind of start mm -hmm. to take some of the steps and, and move forward with, you know, solving problems on their farms with you guys. I mean, it's uh, visiting the website has all of our contact information. It has, um, you know, it's, the products are on there with prices, everything's priced. That's one thing that um, really drives me crazy is companies will have a product and they don't tell you how much it costs. <laughs> um, so, so the testing services, the education and the products are all on the website with prices. Just keep in mind as a farmer, those are all retail prices. So the next step would be to reach out to us and start talking to us. We're very accessible. Um, you can email info at earthfort.com. You can email me directly, Matt, M-A-T-T, -T, at earthfort.com. Uh, you can call the office. We're, we're here during the week. Um, 
you know, and sometimes, well, I'm always working. So um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, sometimes I, I won't answer the phone in the middle of the night, you know, some oh man! <laughs> I know some boundaries, but I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Um, Brilliant. Well, look, yeah. man, that's a lot to to get us going for. I can tell that we could do multiple full episodes on other parts that we just glossed over today. Maybe we can do a yeah. follow up about the function yeah. of biology, bacteria, and fungi in the soil. This was yeah, well, really fun. It's quite a breadth of knowledge that you've you've gotten over the years in in such different contexts and circumstances that makes it really useful to go over the, I guess the patterns and the learnings from all of that is, is really insightful. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, well, you're most welcome. Thank you for having me and I hope that, I hope this is useful to your listeners. Thanks again to Matt. I'll link to all of the resources that he mentioned at the end there in the show notes for this episode on the website at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.